All right, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter number 6. I am, I am looking forward to, to the message tonight, uh, but it is one of those where I'm like, I sure hope I don't mess this up. And uh, you're, you're, you're probably learning that I feel that way a lot. <laughs> I really do, um, but especially tonight. Um, Isaiah chapter number six is one of my favorite chapters. Now, with full disclosure here, I've got a lot of favorite chapters, okay? But Isaiah chapter six is, is one of them, all right? And, and, and I'll tell you why. Because I love those chapters in the Bible that, that just pulls back the curtain and allows you to get a glimpse of His glory. Allows you to see things beyond this world and see Him high and lifted up. And, and that's what I want us to see, to see tonight. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter number 6. Um, I'm just going to read, well, I can't help myself. I'm going to read uh, down to verse number five, and then we'll see if I have the ability to stop there or not. But we'll definitely get the first five verses, okay? So here we go, Isaiah chapter six, verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me. Hang on, I've got to do a better job. There's an exclamation point there. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Incredible picture. Father, I pray that you would help me tonight. Lord, I want to give clarity to your word as I understand it, but at the same time, I don't want my efforts for clarity in your word to distract us from seeing your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help me with that tonight. Lord, give us understanding and may our eyes be open in the same way that Isaiah's eyes were open here that we would see you in your holiness, in your glory, in your perfection, in your existence, Lord, that it is higher and mightier than us. 
And Father, as we are beholding your glory, may we see that we are also of unclean lips and unclean hearts and unclean minds. And may we respond the same way that Isaiah did, Father. That we would say, woe is me. That we would give all the glory to you. And Father, if we find ourselves unable to discern all the clarity of your word, may we just resign ourselves to say glory to your name. You are higher and mightier than us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. There's some things that I want to deal with tonight concerning God's holiness. I'll be honest, I really have a twofold purpose with the, with the message tonight. And, and I'm, I'm praying for discernment. So if I get bumbled up in my words or confused, um, you're just going to have to, I just beg your forgiveness. Because there is so much on my heart and mind at the same time that I want to convey. When I come to this passage, the three words that leap off the page more distinctly than any of the other words in this passage are these three words, and they are one and the same. Holy, holy, holy. You find this same phrase when the revelator, the apostle John, gets another glimpse into that heavenly realm and sees him high and lifted up and sees the throne. And in Revelation chapter four and verse number eight, and it's my goal to give a number of scriptures, you're more than welcome to to rustle through the pages of your Bible and see them black and white on your page or to write them down for later study. But in Revelation chapter four, verse number eight, we see that same trifecta of holiness. From John's perspective in verse number eight of Revelation four, he says, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night. I believe that the beasts that he is referring to in verse number eight of chapter four in Revelation are the same exact angels that are described in Isaiah chapter six. In Isaiah chapter number six, they are described as seraphim, this certain category or classification of angels. There's much we don't know about angels, but there are some things we do know. And we know a little bit about these particular angels that they had six wings. And we learn in Isaiah that with twain, they covered their face. With twain, they covered their feet. And with twain, they did fly. And I'm not going to make a study of those angels tonight, but I would like to emphasize the fact that I believe there's a reason they covered their feet. And it's because of the message that they carried and because of the location in which they were. They were in the very presence of a holy God. And that was their message as they cried, as Isaiah says, one to another. And they cried this, this song. They sang this song, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. It's the same message in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. 
I believe they covered their face because not even the holiness of those angels could look upon the Most High God. I believe they covered the faith, their feet with the same reverence that Moses was commanded when he came near that burning bush and the Lord God said to remove your shoes because you stand on holy ground. And these angels flew about that throne giving that message that this God, the one true God, the one and only God is described as holy, holy, holy. You'll find throughout Scripture there's a number of times when the Jews are writing that they use that trifecta of declaration to emphasize both the confidence and the truth of a statement. Holy, holy, holy. Let it be known that the word holy is used more times in the Bible than any other term to describe God. More so than merciful, more so than good, more so than gracious. The word holy is used to such a degree that it stands incomparable to any other term which describes God. Even God himself, it seems, uses the the terminology of holiness to describe his distinction from any other creature. It is his holiness that should be ultimately the number one reason why we exalt him, why we worship him, and why we praise him. Psalm 99, verse number five, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Why? For he, oh, forgive me. For he is holy. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. For he is holy. He is greater and mightier. Indeed, but he is holy. His holiness puts him in a category all to his own. For there is no other creature, there is no other part of the creation that carries the holiness of God. For he is unique in that category. If you would allow me the opportunity, I'd like to define, if I could, the word holy um, out of Webster's 1812. The reason that I choose that dictionary is because that is the dictionary that purposefully and intentionally grabbed the, the grammar and the, 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 uh, the, the definitions were used in our King James Bible and then described them using the, the rest of the English language. And so that particular dictionary is dear to me because it most accurately conveys the, the words that we have in our English Bible. And it defines the word holy this way. That holy is properly whole, entire, or perfect. I think sometimes we miss this understanding of holiness because we feel that holiness is to be clean and holiness is to be without blemish. And although those things are true and we'll get to the negative and positive aspects of holiness here in just a moment, let us wrap our minds around the idea that our holiness 
Our holiness is indeed a matter of having our dirtiness, our stain, our blemishes cleansed. But that is not true concerning God's holiness. For God has never been stained. He has never had blemish. He has never needed to be cleansed. So it would be proper and fitting to say that his holiness means to be completely whole and entire, unbroken, unfractured, unbruised, complete. This creation is not holy. Why? Because it is broken and fractured and and incomplete. But he is perfect and complete in himself. We'll not get to this tonight, but if the Lord allows me in the coming weeks, we'll be talking about his self-existence, the idea that he needs nothing or anyone Our holiness is dependent upon someone else. His holiness is not. It is within himself. Hence, Webster goes on to define holiness as pure in heart, temper or disposition. This one is important. Free from sin and sinful affections. Applied to the supreme being, meaning God, holy signifies perfectly pure, immaculate and complete in moral character. This idea of of purity as it relates to holiness is a wonderful reason why the Apostle John describes in 1 John 1, 5 as God being this way, that he is, that he is, that in him is light and in him is no darkness at all. You know, if we were to stare at the lights here in the top of the sanctuary, uh, first off, we would start seeing things. Like I'm seeing little chandeliers right now. But that is not perfect light. In fact, we've, we've replaced these lights even since I've, since I've been here. And, and when we went to replace those lights, we had to choose what, what Kelvin. Do you know what Kelvin is? I thought it was some guy's name. Turns out that was Calvin. Um, Kelvin is a temperature. But specifically with lights, that temperature determines its, it, whether it's that like bright, harsh, bluish light or whether it's that, you know, like grandmother's light bulb that almost looks yellow. I, I can jump on this, and I've, I've been wanting to do this while preaching so many times over. I've really got this one message in which it's going to be great, but I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag, but who cares? Uh, that's, that's the great thing about coming on Wednesday nights. It's kind of like the behind the scenes, right? <laughs> but see, here's the thing about it. I could, I could get on my phone. I could go to our, our main lights, and right now they're only at 60%. Did you know it can get a lot brighter in here? You get a lot dimmer. See, that's been happening recently. Since you're on the inside crowd, whenever this happens, it's because someone leans against that switch right there to the left of the door back there, and it knocks out all of these lights, and then I got to come on here. I actually did this during preach, while preaching on Sunday. Thanks, John Vincent. I appreciate that. Um, I better get back on point or I'm going to lose my point. <laughs> My point is this, we've never seen pure light. The sun has has spots and shoots and flares. We look to the heavens and there's different shades of stars. 
we don't even we don't even have the slightest notion of what it would be to look like into the purest light that's not defiled by an outer glass or by electrical impulses or by some, some light-emitting diode, some LED. We have no idea what that's like. So God reaches down into the vocabulary of man and grabs a word that may be imperfect at best but still grasps what he's describing to mankind. And the Apostle John says that this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. That he is light. He's not a dimness, but instead he's the brightness, the fullness of light. That's why in the heavenly realm, if you were to go to the book of Revelation, you'll discover that there is no sun nor moon. There's no stars in the skies, in the sky because he is the light of it. That's why I believe that you'll read in the Bible about that new heavenly Jerusalem as it descends down, that the walls, they are, they are transparent so that his light can emanate unimpeded outside of that entire city. Why? Because the new heaven and the new earth will be illuminated not by an imperfect light, but by the perfect light, and there will be no darkness in him at all. In him is no darkness at all. See, we are not that way. Webster goes on and and gives a few other definitions for for the word holy. Uh, Holy is also hallowed or consecrated, set apart to a sacred use or service of worship of God. But that is not what God is. He is not set apart for his own worship, but he he is... distanced from everything else altogether. You see, that's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 ought to strike our hearts and pierce our souls. I made a comment on on last Wednesday night and I stand behind it. That God is immutable and unchangeable, but there is one time in which he became something that he was not previously, and it was when he became sin for us. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let that sink in for just a moment, this, this pure, perfect, complete, bright Being called God took upon sin so that we could take his holiness upon ourselves. This thing that we do not deserve, this thing that we are unworthy of, this thing that separates us entirely from him. And that is why Isaiah looks into his holiness and says, woe is me, I am undone, he is altogether beautiful, and I am wicked and evil, he sang. He said, and not only that, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts, and in that sight he is holy, holy, holy. Just a couple more descriptions, and then we'll move forward. As I said just a moment ago, I'd I'd like to be reminded that, that holiness both has to be taken in um, negatively and positively to adequately grasp what God is. Be patient, I'm doing my best. Negatively in this way. 
That holiness is that perfection in God that totally separates him from all that is evil and defiling and common. As we call gold pure when it is free from any dross or impurities or a garment clean when it is free from any spot, so is the nature and actions of God. They are free from any impurity or evil of any kind whatsoever. In him is light, and in him is no darkness at all, the Bible says. Now, I want to establish something that from Scripture should be absolutely undeniable. And then I want to deconflict what some have said are contradictions to this. If you want, you can take your Bibles or you can just listen. I'm going to quote these verses. So in order for God to have this negative aspect of holiness, in other words, there is this thing that is far removed from him and distinct away from him. That's what I mean when I say the negative aspect. I'm not saying his holiness is bad. I'm saying he's far away from this. And that is sin and evil and error and wickedness. A few verses that should lead us to this conclusion. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 5. And we know... And we know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So that verse should be enough. Like, okay, God has no sin, no evil, no wrongdoing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as, you, like as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. You see, that's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 15 says, says this, it says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. I am holy. The fact is that when we look at Scripture, God cannot and does not sin. Now, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to show you a few places in the Bible where people have questioned whether or not God commits evil or whether or not God sins. And I would encourage you to look at these. First off, I want you to go to Amos chapter 3, verse number 6, if you're able. Amos chapter 3, verse number 6. And I want to say, well, I'll save that for here for, for just a moment. Well, no, I'll go ahead and say it now. While you're turning there, Amos chapter 3, verse number 6. A couple weeks ago, after I had preached on, on God and evil, I had a, a handful of people, uh, there were about five different people that that either, either texted me or contacted me and had questions about a couple verses. Most of the people's questions was regarding a verse in Isaiah, and we're going to go there here in just a minute. However, there is, there is one that had questions about a couple of these other verses. And this was the conflict that they were having Pastor Jared, I, I heard what you preached that, 
that God does not evil. And what I preach specifically, and we'll get to this in a minute, I said God did not create evil. We're going to get to that in a moment. But there are some real good questions about whether what I was saying was true. Now, let me say that again. There are real good questions about whether what I was saying was true. Now, this is where it might get weird for you all, but it's not weird for me. For too long in our churches, we've had the kind of pastor and church member relationship to where nothing can ever be questioned. Can we just be honest with that for a minute? I am so grateful for the home that God gave me because I always felt like I could ask a question. I had a great benefit. But I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of people that are kind of in my generation and younger that that were sort of brought up in this place where you can't question. Let me give you a few that the people get all up in arms about. Don't question the King James Bible. And here's what I mean by that. Don't ask the question, why do we use that Bible? I have heard some people get railed out for asking the question. That should not exist. That should not exist. I've heard people dress down because they asked, are you sure Jesus rose from the dead? (laughs) You know, could I, could I just be honest? That question deserves an answer. Isn't that the reason God gave us the Bible? So that we could have the answer? And, and this is what I want to be just like so transparent. I am privileged to pastor Valley View Baptist Church. And I am honored to be your pastor. And I want you to know how I would like for that relationship to work, if that's okay. All right? Don't get critical. You get critical? I'm just going to get mad and the conversation's not going to go well. There's a difference between being critical. Well, I don't like that, Pastor. Well, I don't like you. (laughs) There's a difference between being critical and asking an honest question. I don't like that, Pastor. Well, sorry your feelings got hurt, you know. But... I always want you to be able to ask a question. I always want you to be able to text me or call me after a service and say, Pastor Jared, I know that you preach this, but I was reading this in the Bible and I'm not sure where those things line up. We need that kind of environment in our churches. And I could spend the rest of our time talking about how important I think this is so that we stop having men that just abuse the pulpit. Do we not believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Which means you got the same God that I do. Do we not believe in his power to illuminate his word? You've got the same illumination as I do. I might stand on a higher platform. That just makes me taller. It doesn't make me smarter, okay? So please, please, please never feel like you can't ask the question. Also, don't feel like I'm the final authority because the Bible is, okay? Now, I could keep going. I won't. Now, let me get back to this, okay? So I had some people ask me, what about these? If God is holy, if God doesn't sin, or if God didn't create evil, then what do you do with these? 
Listen to this. This is a really good question. When you read this verse, you're going to agree like, "Mm, how is he going to get out of this one? (laughs) I don't have to get out of anything. I just have to look as deeply and as closely and as specifically at at the words and what's happening, and I have to understand what the Lord's saying. There's no jujitsu or smoke and mirrors here. Let's look at this. The question, did God do evil? Amos chapter three, verse number six. I I hope you're there. Here it is. Shall a trumpet, this is a rhetorical question that's about to be asked. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Okay, so that's a rhetorical question. Like I think context is really important here. That's what's trumpets blown. Enemies coming. Ah! Everybody's coming. They're going to attack us. So what's it saying? A trumpet's blown in the city, and shall the people not be afraid? Like absolutely, they're going to be afraid. It's a rhetorical question. Okay, let's continue with the verse. I'm going to take too long. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be? Here it is. Evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. Is there evil in a city and the Lord had not done it? Can I, can I dig the hole a little deeper? Um, Lamentations chapter 3, verse number 38. You can go there or you can um, just write it down or listen intently. Did God do evil? Well, Amos 3, 6 says, Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Lamentations 3.8 says this, out of the mouth of the most high proceedeth not evil and good. It's that same rhetorical kind of thing. Out of the mouth of God proceedeth not evil and good. Is this saying that God is now speaking evil? Now, if you remember our definition for, about evil last week, evil is defined this way. I kind of um, simplified Jared version. Evil is defined as anything that is against the, the will or the design of God. So anything that's contrary to God. So are we saying that, that God is speaking against his own will or design? This doesn't make sense. How about this one? Job chapter two, verse number 10. Job chapter two, verse number 10. Did God ever give evil? Did God ever give evil to someone? Job 2.10. But he saith unto her. Now, now this is that, that part in, in Job where Job is not doing very well and Job's wife says, uh, you know, curse God and die. And Job responds and he says, but he saith unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Listen to the next, the rest of the verse. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. In other words, he's speaking the truth. Amos chapter 3, did God do evil? Lamentations 3, did God speak evil? Job 2, did God do evil? Can I go ahead and answer the question? (laughs) No, he didn't. He said, but Pastor Jared, I, I see it right there. This is what is so important as we understand what the word evil means. Now, yes, two weeks ago, I had one definition that I was offering, and I'm focusing on moral evil and moral evil alone. I'm talking about anything that is outside the will or the design of God. But once again, going back to my friend Webster, in Webster's 1828, the noun evil has two primary uses. 
One is a description of natural evil, and I'm just going to read it to you. Natural evil, or I'll do moral evil first. Moral evil, which we discussed two weeks ago, is any deviation of a moral agent from the rules of conduct prescribed to him by God. Hence, my definition, anything that is against the the will or the design of God. So moral evil, as defined by the Webster's 1828, is a devi- any deviation of a moral agent from the rules of conduct prescribed to him by God or by legitimate human authority, or it is any violation of the plain principles of justice and rectitude. So that's how moral evil is defined. However, concerning the noun evil, there is not just a definition for moral evil, but he also provides a definition for natural evil. Now listen to this definition. Natural evil is anything which produces pain, distress, loss, or calamity, or which in any way disturbs the peace, that's going to be important later, or which in any way disturbs the peace, impairs the happiness, or destroys the perfection of natural beings. And I think that you all understand and and are well aware that every single word has a range of meaning. And I think that this is important as we read our Bibles, because it's very easy to read our Bibles and ignore the range of meaning of of certain words. And this is something that we use in our daily vernacular, in our vocabulary every single day. Um, Words have more than just one definition, although those definitions are also usually closely associated. Uh, For example, moral evil, any deviation of moral agent of the rules of conduct prescribed by God. In other words, a deviation from what was once perfect in creation, right? Well, isn't the, this natural evil, pain, distress, calamity, loss of peace, impairment of happiness, aren't those all a result in many ways from what's happened after the fall. So, so even though it's one word with two definitions, these are not two opposing definitions. In fact, there's only one word that I know of in the entire English vocabulary, in the entire English language, and I hope that maybe you'll find another one. I'd really like to know it if there is, in which it's two definitions roughly mean the opposite. Cleave. Cleave means to hold tight, And cleave also means to split in half. Yeah, I'm confused. I don't know how or why. But most definitions have overlap. This one is the same. Now you might say, well, Pastor Jared, that's, you know, that's all well and fine. But um, but what about the Hebrew? Good news, friends. This is an accurate translation of the Hebrew word. Many commentators, if you read about the passages we're looking at, will say, oh, that's mistranslation, that's mistranslation. No, it's not. No, my Hebrew pronunciation is absolutely horrendous, um, but it's spelled and sounds something like this. The Hebrew word for evil is rah. There it is. Someone's going to critique me on it. Sorry. Um, 
but, but here's the idea in the Hebrew is that the majority, the vast majority of the time this word is used, it's talking about moral evil, this, this departure from God's plan. And wouldn't that be true of the English word evil? That the vast majority of the time that the English word evil is being used, it's being used to describe this sinfulness, this departure from God's plan. So anyone that, that proposes that this is a, a mistranslation is missing it entirely. Hey, go look and do your own research about the Hebrew word ra and the English word evil, and you will find the same. I would recommend that your examination of the English word evil include um, its historic use all the way back to the time in which our Bible was translated. I think it will be helpful. If I could just um, exemplify one more thing about, or one more definition concerning the natural evil or the natural use of the word evil is that Webster's 1828 also defines it this way, the natural use of it, as an unfortunate, unhappy, producing sorrow, distress, iniquity, or calamity. So just for, just for, for sake of not having to repeat all those words, for the rest of the time, I'm just going to use one word. I'm going to use calamity, because I think it's the one that captures this idea of the loss of peace, the disruption of normalcy, having your apple cart, so to speak, turned upside down, calamity, calamity. And this is used in several different, different times in, in the Bible. Think about this. So many have been so perplexed about this verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Is that saying that the days are morally against the will and design of God? No, because it's God that designed them. But what it is saying is that there's going to be a lot of calamity in those days. There's going to be a lot of things that are opposed to how God originally created it. You better redeem the time because those days are full of trial, pain, injury, calamity. How about this one? Ezekiel 5, 17. When I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine. Do you think the arrows themselves is, are, are we going to be, you know, so rigid in this that the arrows themselves are, are morally against God? Like, don't touch those arrows. Those, uh, those have offended God. No, that's not what it's saying. When it says the evil arrows of famine, it's talking about the, the calamity of famine, the disaster of famine, the, the difficulty of famine. Here's, I'll just give you one more. Jeremiah. 49.23, it says, concerning Damascus, Hamath is confounded and Arpad, it's speaking of judgment that God is bringing, for they have heard evil tidings. Was it that the tidings were evil? Did, did someone use profane language when they were describing them? No, it's that the tidings were describing a calamity, a judgment, a disaster that was coming, something that would disturb the peace and, and upset the mind and the heart. That's what's being described here. For they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow on the sea, and it cannot be quieted. And I'll just remind you that both the English word evil and the Hebrew word that's translated from it, the majority, the vast majority of the time it's translated, it is referring to moral evil, departure from God. However, it is within the range of meaning, both in the Hebrew and in the English word evil, 
to mean this calamitous event that disturbs our, our normal cadence of life and upsets our peace. There's one more verse that I want to show you, and this was the verse that most had in question last two weeks ago. And it's Isaiah 45, 7. And go ahead and turn there. I want you to see it. Isaiah 45, 7. Now, for those unfamiliar with Isaiah 45, 7, Many, many look at this verse and, and they say their interpretation is that, that God here is creating moral evil. And when you read the verse, you're going to understand why. Because here's what it says, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light. Okay, that's talking about only one person. That's talking about God. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. <laughs> I, the Lord, do all things. You know, I, I made a mistake two weeks ago because what I should have done is just gone through all these definitions and stuff two weeks ago so that even for those who may disagree, by the way, it's okay to disagree with Pastor Jared. Just don't disagree with God. So if, if you really feel with all of your heart that this is speaking that God created, you know, moral evil, then by, by all means, now you might have some trouble with some of the other passages in Scripture, but by all means, if, if that's what you feel, then, then follow in that. But, but, but I think we, we really need to understand how it's being used. Now, here's a really good question. I'm watching the clock. Here's a really good question. For the pageant, if it's used to refer to moral evil the vast majority of the time, how can we determine when it's being used in this other way? Because we don't want to just say this because that's what we want it to say or say that because that's what we want it to say. Can I give you a phrase that one of my Bible professors taught me and it has stuck with me forever? He, he would always say, context is king. What does a king do? A king is the one with the authority. A, thing, a king is the one with the scepter. A king is the one that decides what is and is not. He is the one that is sovereign in his realm. And context, when we study our Bibles, is always king. Context is king. And you will discover that whether it's Ephesians 5, because the days are evil, Ezekiel 5, um, the evil arrows of famine, Jeremiah 49, the evil tidings, that the context of that passage and the context of that verse will always point and clarify which definition is understood and, and which one is intended. So now let's kind of take this Isaiah 45 and, and let me use this verse to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Okay, now um, for sake of time, I'm not going to go to the beginning of the chapter, but let me just, just open it up for you and then you can, can study and read and feel free to text and write and call and talk and I, and I love it and you won't hurt my feelings. And by the way, if you hurt my pride, that's a good thing. 
Okay, feel free to come by and step on my pride every now and then um, because when I read my Bible, I learn that the way up is down and God, uh, God you know, refuses the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. Okay, so feel free to ask any questions you want. As we look at Isaiah 45, God is establishing that he is God and that the pagan gods of these other kingdoms are not what he is. Because there was this danger of them just associating the Jehovah God as one of many. So God's response is that he is the only one. Verse number six, we'll start there and then we'll, we'll, we'll come down. Or I'll, verse number five, there's a little paragraph marker there, so that's probably the better contextual marker. I am the Lord and there is none else So that is the point here. There is no God besides me. I girdeth thee, thou that hast not known me. In other words, you may not know me, but I'm the one that made you. I girded you. I I provide everything for you. Verse number six, that they may know from the rising of the sun, which is in the east, and from the west. So right here is where God begins to use contrasting elements in the text to say that he is everything. So at the beginning of verse number six, he says that I may know from the rising of the sun in the east, right? We all know that's in the east, all the way to, from, all the, way from the west. So he's saying that, that from the east to the west, the full span of things, he says, I am the Lord and there is none else. And then he continues this this logic. This is God. He says, I form light and create darkness. And what's he doing? He's grabbing two opposing poles. So east, west, opposing poles. Light, darkness, opposing poles. And then when I come down and I read this next phrase, Um, So in verse number six, east, west, verse number seven, I form light, create darkness. Then he comes to the next opposing pole. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all things. And I believe that this is the same continuation of context that east, west, light, darkness, peace, evil, calamity, the opposite of peace, the robbing you of your peace. And, and sometimes, and I don't have time to go into this aspect of it, but, but sometimes when we look at the evil that the Lord does, he is bringing the consequence of evil is what happens so often when we find that word as it pertains to God's actions. That was the case in Amos. That was the case in Ezekiel. Uh, That was the case in Jeremiah. It was the consequence of evil. And what was that consequence? That he was removing their peace. He was upsetting their cart, if you will. He was bringing calamity, not moral evil, not a, not a, a, something that is against the will or the design of God, but instead something that his holiness demands, something that is part of his will and his design. The judgment of evil, the judgment of those who oppose God. And and it might be said that that when when we see this, this phrase in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we look at these opposing poles, that whenever we see this word evil, 
show up and God is either doing it or speaking it or giving it or creating it. That maybe we should step back for just a moment and ask the question, okay, are we speaking of moral evil that he is doing or giving or speaking or creating or is he speaking of natural evil, disaster, storms, attack, famine, calamity. Did he create all those things? Yes, he did. And I'll tell you when. The moment the fall took place. So Pastor Jared, can you observe that in nature? Yeah, when did thorns come? It was after the fall. When did death come? It was after the fall. When did labor out in the field for men and, and hardship in childbirth for women come? All of that calamity, so to speak, was created by God, and it was created as a judgment for evil and the consequence of it. I'm going to have to close tonight, although there's plenty more that I'd like to say. But I want to finish with, with this thought that God has called us to holiness. And we can never be the kind of holiness that He is except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But in, in 1 Peter 116, he says, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Man, I, I don't have time to, to get into some of the way that people perceive the Christian God and some of the way that, that Islam perceives their God as one who sanctions evil. But our God does not sanction evil. He is sovereign over it. There is no evil that overcomes God. Be not overcome with evil. God is able to deliver us. But as we walk, let us not give any excuse to ourselves to walk in the flesh or the lust of the flesh, but may we hold the holiness of God in high regard. And every time we come to a decision in our life that could involve being disobedient or, or disrespectful to holy God, may we first lift our eyes as Isaiah did in chapter number six and see those angels with their face covered and their feet covered and their wings flying and their voices declaring that he is holy, 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 the Lord God almighty. For I am telling you that he is worthy.